1: so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com historyextra History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate
2: every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. And on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mc so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. Britain's best selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's episode is the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, where expert historians respond to popular online search queries and questions that you've submitted via our social media channels. This time, the topic is the Persian Empire. Our expert is Lloyd Llewellyn Jones and putting your questions to him on everything from Persian gods to their wars with the Greeks was BBC History Magazine editor Rob Attar.
3: So today in the latest of our Everything You Wanted to Know podcasts we're going to be discussing the ancient Persian empire and joining us to explore this topic is Lloyd Llewellyn Jones who is Professor in Ancient History at the University of Cardiff, an expert in the Persian empire And in fact, he's currently working on a new history of that empire, which is called Persians, the Age of the Great Kings, and is due to be published next spring. So, Lloyd,
4: welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Thank you very much. I'm doing pretty well, given the strange, strange times that we're living through, Uh, but doing okay. So thank you very much. Um, It's a great pleasure to be here.
3: Fantastic. Thank you. And uh, so now, as always, the questions for these episodes have come from a combination of popular search queries and also some of you sent in on social media. We had a really, really good response to this topic. Excellent. Great, great. Yeah, thanks for all your questions. Um, Before we begin, Lloyd, a very quick question, first of all. What is the best name for this empire? Because I've seen it called the Achaemenid, Persian, Iranian.
4: Uh, All of these are valid. Um, What I always say to my students is once you choose one Uh, way of describing it, stick to it. So yes, Persian Empire is okay. The first Persian Empire, some people call it. Um, The Achaemenid Empire, the first Iranian Empire, all of these things are fine uh, for today. Let's call it the Persian Empire.
3: So let's kick off with a fairly straightforward internet search query, which uh, was where was the Persian Empire?
4: Okay, so the heart of the empire um, was in the Persian heartland itself, which today is in the province of Fars, which is in southwest Iran. So it's the area around the modern city of Shiraz. That's the absolute hub of the empire itself. Uh, But within uh, a generation, really, the empire began to expand under Cyrus the Great. I'm sure we'll speak more about him later on. Um, And by the time of its fall, uh, that is its conquest by Alexander of Macedon, it stretched from Um, southwestern Iran, right the way out to the west to northern Greece, um, across the deserts of North Africa in Libya, right the way down the Nile into Ethiopia. To the north, it stretched up to southern Russia. Uh, To the east, it went all the way over to Pakistan and to northern India as well. So it was an empire of remarkable size. I mean, really quite something spectacular. Um, The first, what we could call for antiquity, the first global empire, really. By far the biggest empire the world had ever seen at that time.
3: So, I mean, does it compare in scale to things like the um, Roman Empire, Alexander the Great's Empire? How does it compare to those? uh, Yes, it compares
4: well to Rome, I suppose, if if the axis for Rome uh, is around Rome itself, then I suppose um, its eastern border um, in the Sasanian period in the second century would be uh, about sort of beyond Damascus to the Euphrates. So I suppose in terms of territory, it's the same size as the uh, Roman Empire. But of course, um, the trajectory is very different, running um, from the centre of Iran, east and west, of course, and that's the important thing to remember.
3: Going back to the origins of the empire, lots of people online have searched for the question, who was the founder of the Persian Empire?
4: Uh, okay, fine. I mean, the ancestry of the Persians is is really fascinating because they were a, uh, a nomadic people who came from Eurasia originally, from the steppes, Uh, And they moved into the Iranian plateau, as we now call it, around about 1000 BCE, and they settled there. Already there were indigenous Iranian peoples who were living there already. Um, So the Elamites, for instance, were a very long and and established civilization um, down in um, the southwest of Iran. Uh, But these new nomadic people um, brought very different kind of traditions and lifestyles and cultures with them. They were very much a kind of horse horse mentality, a horse culture um, from the steppes. And as they settled into the Iranian plateau, they split into different tribes. They were always tribal. So in the north, for instance, I'm sure uh, people will have heard of the Medes. They were kind of like the first cousins of the Persians who settled down in the south. So in a way, there was an attempt by the Medes, first of all, to establish an empire before the Persians even started. Um, The Medes, in a way, kind of got a head start in empire building um, situated in the north of Iran. Um, They made alliances, for instance, with the Assyrians and later on with the Babylonians. And so they were kind of like a growing power uh, in the north of Iran. The south of Iran, where the Persian tribes were based, really come into play around about 600 BC. And we find in an area called Anshan, which uh, is located towards the west of southwest Persia. There we see a, a family uh, growing, a dynastic lineage, um, around a man called uh, Tishpish. In the Greek sources, he's known as Teispes, and He starts what we call the Taispid dynasty. Um, there are three or four of these kings who are making very interesting sort of headways in gathering together alliances of different Persian tribes, bringing them under kind of one banner. And the person really who is the most successful at doing that is one of these Tyspid kings. And of course, uh, the Persians knew him as Kurush. We know him as Cyrus, Cyrus II, Cyrus the Great, as he's he's come down preserved in Persian and classical memory. And it's really... um, his remarkable kind of foresight in bringing together these very disparate Persian tribes under his one banner um, and unifying them in a way that nobody really had ever attempted to do before. And when he did that, he was able to, to march them north and actually defeat the growing power of the Medes, another group of tribal alliances, really, who were threatening the kind of autonomy of the Persians in the south. And from there on in, the rest is history. You know, um, Cyrus doesn't stop at just conquering these northern tribes in Iran. Um, he immediately understands that the, the tribal um, median empire, if we can call it that, or at least tributary areas, stretched out in North Mesopotamia and into Anatolia as well. So all of these lands fell to Cyrus in one fell swoop. And he realized really it was only one hop, skip and a jump over to the coast of Asia Minor, to the great um, Greek-speaking cities of Ionia. Uh, and of course, he led his men there uh, and conquered Sardis, which was probably the wealthiest city in the known world at the time. Uh, that fell to him quite easily. And as Cyrus returned to his Iranian heartlands in the south, um, he swung down south in Mesopotamia and conquered the Babylonian cities too, ending, of course, with Babylon itself. So the empire really came from um, an amazing kind of opportunistic um, mindset of Cyrus. I don't think it was anything he ever started out thinking. You know, I think he wanted to unite his tribes and give some strength to, to the Persians. But what happened within a course of, of his lifetime was he begins um, laying down the blueprint of a very successful empire. Um, he, he was a man of real genius and real vision, but also a man who understood how to play opportunity to his best advantage.
3: Now, we had a question on Instagram from Owen Cross, and Owen wanted to know, what made the Persian Empire so successful? Uh,
4: that's in, that's a good question, Owen. Um, it was a successful empire, and as I say, the blueprint is written down um, with with Cyrus. I think part of it is the fact that the Persians didn't barge in and change running or operating institutions if they didn't need changing. So while they often installed satraps, that is, we, we could call them governors or viceroys in different parts of the empire, they also worked very closely with local dynasts, um, local uh, administrators, local bigwigs too. Um, and we see that there is a real continuity of tradition that is maintained by the, uh, the Persian overlords, which is something that we don't see in Rome, for instance, you know, Rome um, will, will uh, put in their own men in different parts of the empire and Romanize the whole process. The Persians never do that. So they don't force um, a Persian language um, on um, captive peoples. Um, they don't impose any religious identity on captive peoples. Um, what the Persians are interested in, is allowing their empire to run smoothly, with satraps integrating with locals, establishing and upholding traditions that have that kept going uh, for generations. And as long as the tribute, the taxation, kept pouring in to the central administration in Iran, then the Persian great kings were quite happy with that. But they had no concept of um, stamping Persianess on to conquered peoples. So... Um, as many of your listeners will be aware, you know, if they've traveled widely around the the remains of the Roman Empire, whether they're in uh, central Italy or northern Britain or in Syria, you can spot a Roman town or a Roman city a mile off, okay, because it will always have the same things. It will always have um, a forum, a basilica, a theater, an arena. These are the hallmarks, you know, you stamp Rome on its empire. The Persians never attempted anything like that. They they didn't see the necessity uh, of that at all. They believed in something which is very modern, really, as a concept, and that is multiculturalism. Um, Persian, old Persian texts even have a word that can be translated as as kind of integrated peoples, multiculturalism. It was a very refreshing way of thinking about empire. And I still think you know i'm I'm no fan of Empire um at all, but if Empire was to be imposed, then I would rather have the Persian version than anything else.
3: yeah, then we had a few questions actually about this kind of multicultural makeup of the Persian Empire. And there was an interesting one from Daniel O'Donnell, who may or may not be the Irish singer on Facebook. and um Daniel uh, he wrote in to say, are there any instances or examples? that occurred throughout the lifetime of the empire that involved race relations, ethnic tensions, or conflicts that stemmed from perceived institutional racism towards different minority groups within the empire. So I suppose he's saying, yes, it's a multicultural empire, but were there times when the dominant Persians did mistreat ethnic groups within it?
4: Yes, uh, interesting question. Very good question. I'm not sure if I'm totally comfortable with terms such as racism, for instance, in antiquity. OK, it's, it's, it's another ball game. I don't think the Persians, to be fair to them, like the Romans, really saw race as an issue. Ethnicity and, and nationhood, um, I think they do see as an issue. Um, now, by and large, um, the building of the empire uh, and the maintenance of that empire was, by and large, peaceful. But let's, let's not be around the bush here, okay? A lot has been said about this kind of Pax Persica, you know, the Persian peace in which they established and, and maintained their empire. But, of course, you do not create an empire simply by going around holding hands and being friends with everybody, okay? When Cyrus started his campaigns, to the dying days of the empire, warfare was endemic. Um, the suppression of revolts could be vicious, and bloody. uh, And that's the reality of running any empire. So in this respect, the Persians were no different. It's just that they tried to maintain an equilibrium, a sense of balance, and a sense of peace for longer than others, I suppose. But there were um, moments when that all collapsed around them. So in, for instance, Egypt, Was of course a very important aspect of uh, the 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 empire for the Persians because, of course, it was such a wealthy area, had connections to the Mediterranean, to the gold reserves and the turquoise reserves um, in Ethiopia, and yet the Egyptians were not a particularly easy people to rule. Um, And several times during the Persian occupation, um, there were serious uprisings, and of course, uh, it came to the point where Egypt actually broke away from the empire and regained its independence um, for some 60 years before it was reconquered and brought back in as well. Uh, And that was done with, with, dreadful um, um, scenes of of bloody violence and insurrection and horrific um, recomp- repercussions for the Egyptians as well, especially under Ataxerxes III, who was known um, even to the Greek historians as, as being um, somewhat of a, a tyrant. Um, likewise, if cities or uh, states rebelled against the Persians, um, the payback could be huge. For instance, um In the Levant, in the cities of uh, Phoenicia, the city of Sidon, rebelled against uh, the Persians, against Artaxerxes III. And his response to that was complete destruction of the city, um, the um, enslavement of its population, and the deportation of any others who weren't enslaved. And this is a, a policy, of course, deportation, removing people from one their homestead to another part of the empire, which had been um, carried out, for instance, by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians. So in that respect, um, the Persians were, were following a Near Eastern precedent so there is nothing unusual, in a way, about the 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 this use of force for the acquiring and maintenance of the empire, but it's the way in which the Persians looked towards peace as a norm, which is a little bit out of kilter with other ancient civilizations.
3: And so I, I suppose develop you on this theme. We had um, Jessica Roberts on Facebook um, wrote in to say, what distinguished the Persian Empire from other empires at this time? And how did people who became part of the empire view the Persians?
4: Yes, so um, you know, in, in every empire-building uh, event, there are going to be different takes on the 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 good or the bad of that. I've I've recently been watching um, Jeremy Paxman's four-part BBC series on on the British Empire, and there, you know, one of the, one of the questions he constantly asks. Um, various members of, of, of different communities, i.e. Uh, encounters in India and in Africa and Australia, you know, what, what was there any good to come out of the British Empire? And, and quite surprisingly, many of them say and adhere to the idea that yes, there was, while others, of course, are absolutely against it. And I think it wouldn't have been any different if you'd asked um, citizens or subjects under the Persian kings um, the same kind of question. So there were always pockets of resistance and always pockets that would not accept the hegemony of the great king, while others readily gave their support um, to the great king. We might call them collaborators um, if we were sitting on the other side. A, a really good example of this, for instance, uh, occurs at the, again, the conquest of Egypt by Cambyses, when one of the chief naval officers, um, uh, uh, who was also served the pharaoh as an administrator and a priest, a man called Wajhor Rosnet, um, he readily threw in his lot with Cambyses and actually um, gave Cambyses the kind of intelligence information that he needed. Uh, to break his way into Egypt. And, of course, uh, consequently, he um, benefited from that. He he was still found around in the reign of Darius the Great, his Cambyses' successor, still in positions of of, of high authority. And some 100 years after um, Wajorod's next death, um, his statue was uh, re restored and uh, cleaned and given a sort of primary um, position in a temple by Ataxerxes III. So, you know, the memory of this uh, Egyptian helper, a collaborator from the other side, um, lasted long in the Persian memory. So, uh, you know, there were always going to be dissenters and there were always going to be um, supporters.
3: Now, you've mentioned a few candidates for this already, I expect, but we had a question on Instagram from Molly the Historian and she wanted to know, who
4: is the most famous Persian? Oh, oh, oh that's really hard. That's really hard. Um, I, I guess if you were to ask this question on the streets of Iran today, the answer would be Cyrus, Kurush. There's a huge, huge sort of popularity drive um, being built up around a rather cult figure of Cyrus the Great amongst the young in Iran today. Um, If you were to ask an ancient Greek who's the most famous Persian, they would have said Xerxes, without any doubt whatsoever, because Xerxes was the ultimate Oriental despot for them. Where do I sit on all of this? Well, they've all got their pros and their cons, you know. Um, I guess I have, uh, although I, I don't like him as an individual, I do admire the work of Darius the first Darius the great um, in the fact that he was this remarkable bureaucrat who um, gave cogency to the idea of empire by building roads um, increasing the communication system um, uh, levying taxes correctly drawing up laws the king's laws the data which the the Persians are so proud of so i think he, Darius the first took administration and the kind of idea of the empire to another level. But without uh, Cyrus, of course, there wouldn't have been an empire to start with. And I, I, I do have a soft spot for Xerxes. In in my new book, um, Persians, I, I completely rewrite, as it were, the, the Persian wars. And I try to, to look at the Persian wars from the from the perspective of Xerxes and what was he aiming to do. Uh, And of course, he's been written out of history by Herodotus as this kind of megalomaniac, this man-child really. Uh, But if you look at him from the Persian version, you see a very different sort of Xerxes arising. I I, I wouldn't want to say who is the most famous Persian beyond that, but let's say that they're the three big contenders.
3: Okay. Well, actually, you've um, just alluded to a subject that a lot of people have been asking about, and that is about the Persian wars, the Greco Persian wars, and the Persian interaction with the Greeks, which I suppose for Europe, a lot of people in Europe is probably perhaps how they know them best, really, through the Greek angle.
4: Yes. Um, um, it's not just an angle, though, is it? You know, it, it's absolute myth making. That's been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, I, I read recently a, a new volume uh, on Spartans, and there is the old myth again of this kind of European supremacy uh, and the, the the positive barbarianism of the Persians. Um, they have been marginalised as military power uh, as an economic success. Uh, All of these things, um, they've been forced to give way to to this um, myth-making machine, which has been in operation since the time of Herodotus. And of course, because um, in the West, uh, we have thrown in our lot with Um, the classical world, we see ourselves as the heirs of uh, classical civilization, then we really haven't given the Persians the position that they warrant uh, in ancient history and ancient studies. Uh, And that seems bizarre to me, because without really understanding the power of the Persians, then we are really failing to do justice to our understanding of the ancient world en masse. Without them, Um, we failed to to, to, to really understand what Greece was all about. You know, much of what Greece did in the latter part of the 5th century and the 4th century, in terms of its own structural identities, what it means to be Greek, were constructed only in opposition to the Persians. But to write the Persians out of of that equation is, is a foolhardy and a dangerous thing to do. So my work and the work of many of my colleagues in Achaemenid studies over the last 20, 30 years has to to give Persia its place in history again, its rightful place. I always talk about the Persian version, that we should be looking always for the Persian take on things, looking at the the Persian sources written in old Persian cuneiform language, looking at the material culture that the Persians were creating, the archaeology of Persia, to see, to, to try, to liquidise, temper the um, hostile and certainly hyperbolic vision of uh, European Western history that's been created as a legacy of the Greeks.
3: Well, I I think I might know your answer to the first question we had on this topic, which um, I'll read out anyway. Um, We had Robert Cairns on Facebook and his question was, were the Persians really the bad guys or is that ancient Greek propaganda?
4: Uh, you're absolutely right. It's it's fully propaganda. I mean, it, it's not entirely propaganda, okay? Because um, the, the the Greeks actually had uh, a strange admiration for the Persians as well, and that does come through, even in the works of Herodotus. Uh, but more so in the fact that it, it um, Margaret Miller's wonderful book, Athens and Persia, has has proved to us how fashionable Persica Persian things were in the Greek world, and especially in Athens. So Persian clothes, Persian crockery, Persian slaves. It was a kind of a, a must-have thing. But really, it worked on the level, if you if you make the analogy, I suppose, to the kind of Indian things that were coming into Britain during the 1890s, 1900 you know, this kind of um, colonial sense of, of dressing the part, uh, which still goes on today, of course. So there was this kind of Oh, sneaky admiration for the Persians. Um, but by and large, what we have in the Greek historiography, certainly in history writing, but also in tragedies and comedies, and even in things like the Greek novel is by and large, either a fantastical Oriental spectacle of decadence, or we have out and out xenophobia and bigotry. Um, about the Persians. So yes, I mean we we can never touch uh, our Greek sources uh, without understanding that there's a heavy bias and a very heavy agenda going on.
3: I say we had another question on this topic from Luke Divini or Divini on Facebook, and his question was, what was the Persian view of the Battle of Marathon? Did they think it was a big deal? And I suppose within that question is the idea, you know the Greco-Persian Wars or the Persian Wars mattered hugely to the Greeks. Did they matter as much to the Persians?
4: No, no, absolutely not. They they really didn't. Now, you know, the Persians are not really going to record um, defeat in their inscriptions anyway, okay? So we're not going to expect to see um, the lamentations about, you know, coming home with your legs between your legs any more than you find in uh, Roman sources or Egyptian sources for that matter, okay? It, it doesn't work like that. But it would be very wrong to think that the, the, the Persians thought so highly of these what are, after all, border skirmishes. Marathon, in particular, is is nothing more than a border skirmish. Um, And I think if Darius had hung around long enough, he probably could have taken Greece then and then. But Darius wanted to move his men away from Greece because he had far bigger fish to fry, and that was India. Um, He he needed to to capture India. That's what he wanted to do, and so he took his men away from Greece. Without the sort of thorn in the side of Greece at that point, India could have fallen completely, uh, the whole subcontinent possibly, um, to uh, Persian control, uh, but the forces were dissipated. Now, when it comes to uh, the the campaigns of Xerxes, there is something of a different agenda, of course, because here we do have a king who's leading his armies into war, as was typical for Achaemenid monarchs. That's what they were supposed to do anyway. Um, So... While he failed to, while Xerxes failed to capture the whole of Greece, um, if you think about the the achievements that he had, they were quite remarkable. So, um, first of all, um, of course, we must acknowledge that not all Greek city states were anti Persian, and many of them marched at the side of Xerxes. Um, when he gets to uh, Thermopylae, it's mission accomplished he kills a Spartan king. Now, for a king to kill a king, I mean, that's ideal, okay? That's what that's what it's all about. Um, he marches on Athens and burns it to the ground. Mission accomplished. Okay, so then it goes wrong um, in, in the sea battles uh, and one land battle afterwards, and, and Xerxes decides to, to go home. But he decides to leave mainly because... Again, there's a bigger problem in the empire, and that's a revolt in Babylon. Babylon is always a fractious city. And so um, Xerxes needs to put more of his attention there. But I don't think it was ever the kind of loss that the Greeks um, wanted it to be. So, for instance, Aeschylus in his great play Persians, Persia, of 472 BCE, of course, has Xerxes returning to Susa in rags. You know, pale and wane and 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 mourning um, for his uh, losses, presented as the most hubristic of kings. I don't think that ever happened, and I think we can maybe draw our, our attention back to uh, a very famous passage in Herodotus, where um, Darius the Great supposedly um, instructed one of his table servants that uh, he was to whisper in Darius's ear every night before dinner sire remember the Athenians. Now, it's really only an Athenian or at least a, 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 an Athenian lover who could possibly have written that because I don't think Athens was on Darius or Xerxes' minds very often at all.
3: And sticking to this subject, we had a question from Ulysses uh, Tineo on Facebook, and he, he wrote in, why were the Greeks much better soldiers by comparison than the Persians? And I, and I suppose we should ask question whether that that was true. I mean, maybe he's thinking of something like Thermopylae, where famously or apparently there were far fewer Greek soldiers. But I, d- I don't know how true this is.
4: Um, I I do not think they were greater soldiers than the Persians. Um, you know, where's the evidence for a for a Greek empire of the size of the Persians? Let's not diminish the Persian military force under Cyrus, under Darius, under Xerxes, right the way through up until Darius the Third. Um, the Persians had their own trained military uh, at the center, the core of their army, the immortals, the bodyguards of the great kings. But then they used mercenary troops um, from across their whole empire, including, of course, many Greeks fighting in a Greek style. So we can't say that there's an easy answer to this, that there was you know, a Persian style of fighting or Persian arms and then Greek arms. The, 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 the armies of the ancient world were, were a mishmash. Uh, a melange of of different types of people, different types of weapons and different types of style. I think that Alexander of Macedon's one-upmanship on Persia in terms of the military did count, however. Of course, it's not necessarily a Greek way of fighting, but Alexander's Macedonian sarissas, I think, did have uh, a huge kind of surprise element um, for the Persian troops when they first met um, at uh, at Issus, for instance, um, but by the time Gaugamela was fought, um, Darius had also trained up his soldiers in the use of the sarissa too. So um, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable in in ever saying, you know, that the the Greeks had superior battle forces or su- superior ways of fighting. I don't think that's the way it worked in antiquity. And one thing I I, I want to stress about The bigger picture of how Persia is presented from Greece right the way. to, to modern historiography is this whole idea of a rise and fall scenario, you know. Already by Plato's time, Plato was talking about, oh, the glory days when Xerxes and Darius were there, and then there was this slide into depravity, um, harem intrigues and orgiastic kings, where of course of course, they lost control because the Persians no longer were men. Well, this kind of thing is, is still being chopped out in, in, in popular history writings even today. There was no decline in the Persian Empire. Back in the 1980s, when the Achaemenid History Workshop was first founded in in Holland, um, and this was a a consortium of people working on Persian history, um, to to, to see if we we couldn't uh, disentangle it from the classical historiography, the question that was asked in the 1980s was, okay, was Persia really in this state of decline when Alexander came in? Because the rhetoric was often about, you know, Persia was so corrupt, so... Desperate at this point that Alexander almost put it out of its misery. You know, it was a death blow like that. Now we know from really dealing with the indigenous sources from Iran, from different parts of the empire, including from Bactria, that is modern-day Pakistan and and Afghanistan, where Alexander went um, after the destruction of Persepolis, now we know that the empire was in a very fine state of being and that Alexander inherited an empire which was strong and vibrant and working in terms of the economy, uh, in terms of communications. And we know that because Alexander didn't change a thing. Everything that was was up and running under Darius III, he continued. It, so it's not a slow demise of a weak, decadent civilization that Alexander encounters that or that, that we encounter here. I think, if anything, we should think of Alexander's invasion of Persia as a kind of mugging and a, and a kind of quick cutthroat death, um, which was unexpected um, and not warranted. Um, th- so the question can never really be why did the Persian Empire fall I think the better question, therefore, as some of your listeners have already asked, is why did it last so long? Now, what was it about the Persian Empire that made it so successful? Certainly, there's no rise and fall scenario to play out here.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: Some of the Greek sources, which are quite reliable here, uh, Ctesias and others, for instance, who lived at the Persian court, say, for instance, that when the Persian king dined, he ate... Separately to the rest of his court behind uh, a diaphanous curtain, uh, and then would perhaps call in um, favored courtiers to share a cup of wine with him.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com historyextra History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com historyextra History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy
2: John's Second Skin Underwear. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
3: We've talked a lot about the Greek view of the Persians, but we had a nice question came in from Nessa Kennedy on Facebook. And she asked, how did the Persians view other cultures such as the Greeks or the Egyptians? And she followed that by saying, were ordinary people hostile to those countries, or they simply viewed as military rivals?
4: That's a, that's a great question. I think, by and large, the the Persians were were truly fascinated by other peoples um, and truly warmed to them. Um, and how do we know this? Well, you know, we have no diaries or no letters that tell us this, but we can see it actually in the the monumental art and architecture of places like Persepolis and Susa, um, where we have a really curious blend of architectural styles. So, for instance, we will have Syrian and Assyrian-winged bulls next to Egyptian-style doorways. Um, What the Persians did, really, was when they went to these different parts of the world that they conquered, they saw things which they responded to that they liked, and they bring elements of this back and they mould it to their own uses, and somehow they harmoniously put together these disparate architectural and artistic styles to create something which is really harmoniously and identifiably Achaemenid Persian as well. We also see um, at Persepolis, for instance, on the staircase of the uh, of the East portico of this of the Apadana, the great throne hall, these amazing carved scenes of tribute bearers bringing their gifts to the king. And they come from all parts of the empire, um, starting with Media and Elam. We have uh, peoples from Cappadocia, um, from Greece, from uh, Egypt, from uh, India, all bringing their different gifts. And what you see in the stonework, in the crafting of these images, is just a very clear um, articulation of detail. It's as though the Persian artist, and therefore the the commissioner, who is the king of these images, is simply fascinated by uh, the ethnic diversity of his empire. And there is no question of these images being derivative, for instance. Um, If we think about the way in which... uh, Egyptians, pharaonic Egyptians would often depict themselves in contrast to foreigners. Foreigners are usually depicted on a smaller scale or in Rome, for instance, um, foreigners are very often depicted at the feet of the emperor, below the foot of the emperor. In fact, there's none of this going on. There is harmony expressed in these reliefs. Um, Persian uh, nobles hold the hands quite literally fingers intertwined with diplomats from different parts of the empire. Um, and on his tomb at Rostam near Persepolis, Darius shows himself quite literally being uplifted on a on a platform, a throne, a taft in Persian which are upheld by all the representatives of the Persian Empire and in the cuneiform inscription which accompanies it, he says, if you want to know, what my empire was like. Look at the representations of the people who support me. And then he names them. This is the Egyptian. This is the um, Scythian. Uh, this is the Indian. Uh, this is the whatever. And what he's saying there is really, it's, it's kind of the slogan is, the empire is better together. We, we are doing this together. Now, we have to concede, of course. Again, going back to some of these really good questions earlier on about the nature of empire, that of course um, it's it's a dream in stone is what Darius's artists are creating there, because of course while these wonderful motifs were going up on the walls of Persepolis and Susa and Ecbatana and other great imperial cities, um, of course there might be rebellions in other parts of the empire which were being put down with brute force. So the world is never as it was, of course, in um in the as as they are in the in the images from Persepolis, but it is a very very different way of thinking about empire If you think about how the immediate predecessors to the Persians um the Assyrians visualized their power base or their power building uh from, um, the the wall reliefs, which many of the, the great ones are now in the British Museum, which show, of course, um, successive subject peoples being terrorised. Terror as a weapon of power was the way in which the Assyrians um, articulated their own strength. The Persians completely reject that. You can look in vain on the walls of Persepolis and Susa and the other great palaces to see any images of warfare whatsoever. the Persians simply did not promote that as their first um, first step towards um, projecting an image of their empire
3: Now you've you've mentioned a few of these places already but we had a question in from Tara Atkinson on Twitter and she said what was the function of the royal
4: capitals
3: such as Susa Persepolis and what would the experience of visiting them have
4: been like? Um, It's worth bearing in mind that the Achaemenid monarchy was always a peripatetic one. That is to say, they they, uh, retained their kind of nomadic past, and they travelled around the country constantly. So throughout the year, um, they would move, and they moved according to the weather. Um, So for instance, in Susa, which is on the the border of modern day Iraq in the summertime, you can imagine. I mean, the, the heat there is, well, it's like a furnace. It gets to 45 degrees there. Um, it's it's no good. At that time, the court would be located in the north, in the mountains, in the cool of Hamadan, ancient Ekpatana. Then uh, they would have trundled down the, the huge, huge um, plateau of Iran. Don't forget, Iran is a vast, vast country. And in the springtime, um, they would have reached um, Persepolis. And Persepolis was one of the really was the truly sort of ceremonial capital, I suppose. Um, this was the area where the Nuruz, the, the Persian New Year, was celebrated. After that, they would then move en masse. And you have to imagine, you know, this is a whole kind of state on the move thousands and thousands of people and animals moving together slowly slowly setting up camp setting up tents and moving on day by day until they reached Susa again in the spring and then Babylon and then back to Akpatana. and that's the way that they they moved around constantly um, it's really interesting you know this is why we can never really trust our greek sources the greeks don't know anything about Persepolis until the alexander historians start talking about it hundreds of years after the fall of the Persian Empire. They know of Susa, but they don't really know of anything else at all. That's why we have to be suspect with our our sources. Susa was a great administrative center. Um, Some of the main uh, roads of the empire um, ended at Susa. So you could take the royal road from um, Susa to Sardis, for instance. Uh, But all of them had a grandeur to them. the Persians had no concept of stone building before, really, the, um, the, the reign of Cyrus the Great. Uh, and, but when they achieved stone buildings, when, when they decided, okay, this is going to be for us, they did it on a, on a monumental scale. Um, and truly, I mean, for a, for a subject of the empire coming from, say, North India or from Ethiopia, I don't think they would have seen buildings on the kind of scale um, that we still see in the ruins of Persepolis. Uh, really overwhelming, um, a theatricality to the kind of buildings too. If you want to get a, an image of, of, of what they were like, you can read the opening chapter of the book of Esther uh, in the Hebrew Bible, which is set in Susa and uh, goes out of its way to describe the beauty of the, the Susa Palace made from marble uh, and sandstone and limestone and decorated uh, with um, uh, inlays of different colour stones. Uh, and also of course planted with gardens and that's another feature of persian buildings was the uh, integration of of the stone building with the outdoor space the, the garden itself um, the garden was known in in uh, old persian as uh, pardasu which comes into the greek as paradis paradisos and our paradise as well uh, so this idea of a walled garden um, attached to a, a stone building a pavilion or or a um a uh, a portico uh, is something which goes very, very deep into the Persian imagination, into the Persian mind, uh, and really was operating in Persia right the way up until the 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 revolution, when uh, new monuments, new palaces were being built. The same structure was happening.
3: Now, you, in your last answer, you, you mentioned the uh, the Esther story from the Bible, and uh, we had a question about that actually, which might be interesting to turn to now, from uh, Schmickb three on Instagram. And they wanted to know: Are there any records of the biblical Esther? And I suppose they mean beyond the Bible. Are there any Persian sources?
4: No, none whatsoever. Um, I'm actually the, the the second book I'm writing at the moment is actually a commentary on the Book of Esther from uh, from the Persian perspective, trying to trying to you know bring together the the evidence for Persia from the Book of Esther. Um, I believe the Book of Esther was written around about 350-400 BCE. So I think it is a Persian period piece of work apart from chapter nine, which I think is much later. That's another, another talk. Um, but I do not think that it, uh, encodes history. I do not think that Esther was a real person, uh, nor was Mordecai. Um, I believe that they are folktale characters uh, created by uh, a Jewish writer to give the Jews of Susa um, a sense of belonging. And I think that's what it's all about. The Jews were doing very, very well in Susa, uh, in the Persian Empire in general. And I think this this, um, story was written um, to kind of embrace that idea that a Jewish girl could be a queen. Um, There is no evidence for her, because I do not think she ever existed uh, any more than, say, Helen of Troy existed. But it's a wonderful literary creation, literary motif, and does something for the identity of the, the Jewish people. However, there are lots of Persian realia in the book of Esther, and that's because I think whoever wrote this book knew the Persian world extremely well and also knew the Persian court extremely well. So I get a sense that he was a a Jew who worked in some level within the court, maybe not on the highest levels, uh, but he knows about harems and ministers and and rituals of gift giving and audiences and, and all of that. All of that can be verified without a doubt. And as I said, the architectural layout even of the palaces um uh, are, are are pretty well observed, um, but the core, the core story itself, I think, is a is a kind of fairy tale a, a little novella um, based on the on Jewish identity and its importance. Yeah, its importance to the Persian world.
3: So, is even the underlying story this idea of there being a, a threat to the Jewish community within Persia? Is even that not true? Do you think?
4: I I don't think so. I think the whole um, section on on the the threat and Purim. Um, I think that's a, a much later... Addition about 200, 300 years later, written during the Maccabean period. Um, the Maccabees, as many of your listeners will know, uh, is a period of, of, of great upheaval um, in, in Israel itself, uh, and a great moment when the, when the Maccabees, this, this ruling clan of Jews, need to sort of stamp down their authority and, on, and also give an identity of Jewishness. The, 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 I've always felt very uncomfortable about the way in which the, the trajectory of the story of Esther develops, and then suddenly There is this really bizarre incident of of gross violence that goes on. And it just doesn't make sense to to the rest of the story at all. So, the the best way I can describe it um, is is that, yes, chapter nine. So, the whole idea of Purim and Jewish identity is really a later edition.
3: Okay. And we had a couple of questions about everyday life within the Persian Empire. So, uh, I might ask them together if that's okay. We had Erica. SMCM on Instagram um, wrote in to ask, what did the everyday life of a Persian look like? And then on a related note, uh, Matildexo also on Instagram wanted to know what it was like to be a woman in the Persian empire.
4: Trying to find out about the reality of of daily life of any Persian is very difficult, Um, mainly because most of what we have um, are royal inscriptions uh, and records of the higher echelons of Persian society. Um, so certainly, I could tell you, you know, what high-ranking Persian nobles wore, what they ate, but it's it's almost impossible for us to dig down to a lower level um, to find out the the daily life of, of an average Persian. It's, it's it's a great shame. However, what we do have um, at our disposal is a vast archive. Uh, of cuneiform documents. We call them the Persepolis fortification texts. Uh, and these are ration accounts of people living in and around Persepolis at the time of Darius the Great. It's like a little sort of photo really of, of, of one moment in, in Persian history. Now, some Persians come into play in that but mainly the documents are concerned with a group of people called Kurtash. And the, this word has been translated as workers. I think actually slave is a better translation. Uh, and from these documents, we learn um, how uh, these slaves, these workers, received certain amount of rations, depending on what kind of work they were doing uh, and where in Persepolis as well. There's some quite um, dark elements that come out from uh, a study of these documents in relation to the kurdash. Um, many of them, of course, were war captives or were sold into slavery. Um, they were often put to work in uh, cohorts of people and uh, not necessarily kept together as as families at all. Um, from the rations that they give, I, I would say that it's it's kind of subsistence. Living is what they've given, you know, not 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 a great deal of of, of food um, uh, and certainly not excess calories. So that kind of work is able to be done on uh, on the empire and its and its peoples. But unfortunately, as to the life of kind of an average subject living, you know, a Persian-born subject living in Susa, for instance, we know. Nothing, and and it's a great shame. It's a, it's one of our great losses, and I don't know how we're ever going to rectify that. I suppose we have to use our classical sources for bits and pieces, but always, of course, with the caveat that we we can't be sure. Now, when it comes to to women, um, uh, uh, good work has been done on on women in Persia, um, mainly, of course, of the of the highest echelon. so royal women, um, queens and princesses, uh, women who are called. By the title Dukshish or duksish be in the in the in the plural. Um, so the wives of kings, the daughters of kings. Um, and these women could have very high status indeed and be extremely wealthy. Uh, one of the women that comes out in the Persepolis documents, time and time again, is a woman called Irdabama. Uh, and she has a huge workforce, these, these kurdish over four, five hundred of them, working on different estates in different parts of of Iran. Um, one of her estates is quite near to Shiraz. She has her own steward. Um, she has her own seal, uh, which is quite remarkable. And so on the present issue in the Persepolis fortification uh, text that my colleague, Voter uh, henkelman has suggested, and I think very rationally, that this was probably the mother of Darius the Great. So the king's mother, of course, had the higher status of all the women in the land. So are uh, Documents tell us about this kind of thing, uh, but what they don't uh, tell us uh, really is, is about kind of relationships that women had with their husbands. We know nothing of wedding ceremonies, that kind of stuff. At the lowest rung of the of the ladder, the, the slave women, foreign slave women, uh, we do know more about actually because, again, they are recorded, their lives are recorded in these ration texts. So uh, an interesting detail, for instance, um, a group of Ionian women so these are women who were captured or come as prisoners of war from the Greek city-states of Ionia, and whether they're living with their husbands or not, we don't know, but they are at Persepolis. And there's a group of them who are pregnant, and they all give birth, and upon giving birth, these women are issued with rations, in addition, above and beyond their usual rations, obviously because they're nursing mothers, They need more calories to keep these children um, healthy and alive, uh, for that matter. But then it's really interesting. We we learn in the document that women who give birth to male children are given twice as many rations as uh, a woman giving birth to daughters, which says something straight away, doesn't it, about gender hierarchy and gender ideology uh, within the Persian world. So we have to read between the lines. We have to read very carefully. But we can get some of these things out. Um, The other thing to point out about women, I suppose, within the heartland of Persia itself, is their almost complete absence from the iconographic record. So you can look in vain for an image of a woman on the walls of Persepolis, for instance. They simply are not there. Um, In fact, there's only one female thing at Persepolis, and that's the image of a lioness. And she's only there because she's got her cubs with her too. Um, What does this mean? It doesn't mean that women um, were not agents in their own right, did not have power, did not have status. Um, what I do think it suggests is that women um, lived in a uh, or occupied a kind of, um, it was a kind of Hari mentality. And what I mean by Hari mentality is not, you know, that they were sequestered away and, and lived their lives in pleasure on scatter cushions and stroking Persian kittens. It's not about that. It's a bit about this idea of um, public visibility. Um, today, I think we are so obsessed with the idea that that, that to be known, to be powerful, you have to be visible. In antiquity, for women, there was no honour in visibility. Um, maintaining your invisibility, your sort of sense of purdah from the public sphere is where your power uh, and your status actually sits. Um, to bring you back to the book of Esther, for instance, you know the very uh, thing that kicks off the story of Esther is when... Um, The king, the Persian king Xerxes, demands that his wife Vashti comes out from the harem and shows herself, her beauty, to the drunken men at his banquet. Now, what the biblical author is really telling us there is this is unacceptable behaviour on the part of the king and the part of the ministers of his court who want to look at this woman. They are dishonouring her by doing that. So I think what we have in the operating at the Persian court and the very highest levels of Persian aristocratic society is a kind of um, uh, a segregation, a separation of the sexes, in which invisibility, public invisibility, is the key to status. And let's not forget that the the. It was very difficult even to see the Persian king himself. The whole idea of, you know, a modern monarchy and going around pressing the f- flesh of, of admirers is something that no Achaemenid king would ever want to do. Achaemenid kings in themselves were invisible. Um, some of the Greek sources, which are quite reliable here, uh, Ctesias and others, for instance, who lived at the Persian court, say, for instance, that when the Persian king dined, he ate separately to the rest of his court behind uh, a diaphanous curtain, uh, and then would perhaps call in um, favoured courtiers to share a cup of wine with him. But the whole idea of, of, of visibility was something that doesn't, uh, doesn't work in uh, a Persian context. Monarchy was a reserved, private, um, sacred, um, higher affair, and I think that goes for the women as well.
3: Now, um, another popular internet search query was, what was the main religion in the Persian Empire? And I guess maybe there were many.
4: You're absolutely right, Rob. I mean, it, this is—it's almost impossible to say. For many, you know, for some people, they make the claim that what we see in the inscriptions of Darius the Great and and kings afterwards, because of his adherence to a god called Ahura Mazda, is Zoroastrianism. Well, at best, I think we could call it proto-Zoroastrianism because we're far too early um, to call this you know, a fully developed form of Zoroastrianism as we know today. The the term itself actually wasn't even um, concocted until the 19th century. I think what we see is a a very pragmatic approach to, to religion and to the use of gods by the different kings of the Persian Empire. We don't know anything, for instance, of Cyrus the Great's religion. He makes no comment on his own, as it were, Boyhood faith or national faith. What we see with him is uh, with uh, Cyrus is actually being very pragmatic. So when he's in Babylon, he is very very happy to worship Babylonian gods. Um, He shows himself, in fact, as a as an adorant, as a as a faithful follower of the god. Marduk, the the great god of Babylon, and in the Cyrus Cylinder, this great propaganda piece that is commissioned by Cyrus, um, it is Marduk himself who says, I searched throughout the world looking for a champion, and I found him in the figure of Cyrus. Now, those words, really interestingly, are echoed again in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, in the prophecies of Isaiah. Um, This part of the book of Isaiah was written during Cyrus's reign, in which it is Yahweh, the Hebrew God, who says, I searched around the world to look for a champion and behold, I found him in Cyrus. Um, And of course, very famously, Cyrus the Great gets the title of uh, Messiah, Messiah, God's anointed uh, in the Hebrew Bible. The only Gentile ever to receive um, that that title, uh, which shows then that, you know, Um, Cyrus was all things to all people. He was willing to be uh, a Babylonian God worshipper. He was willing to be uh, a worshipper of the the invisible Jewish God. We we don't have any references to him worshipping Ahura Mazda, interestingly enough. That's something that Darius picks up on. Now, if we were to just rely on the royal inscriptions, we would only see Ahura Mazda and a few references to what Darius calls the other gods who are. So, there is an idea, therefore, of a pantheon of some kind. But when we start looking at the cuneiform text from Persepolis, this is where we see another religious world emerging, which was running concurrently with the worship of Ahura Mazda. And that's the presence of the very ancient gods of Elam. So, these very, very old, indigenous Iranian gods are still being worshipped alongside. The newer gods brought into the Persians um, a thousand years before, uh, and that's the um, really quite remarkable mix of deities and religious thought that's going on. Um, the Magi, the 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 the, the priests of Ahura uh, Mazda, are certainly in operation at Persepolis, but we see them um, holding cultic. Uh, titles and, and uh, rituals next to the priests of Elamite gods as well. Um, of course, it's it's something that the ancients, apart from the Jews by the time we get to the Second Temple period, that the ancients never got themselves worked up about. Um, a god is a god is a god and, and all can be worshipped. And we see that in action very much um, in, in the Persian Empire.
3: Now, um, coming on to the end of the Persian Empire, we talked a bit about this earlier, but it, it, essentially, it comes to an end when Alexander the Great conquers it, and is, is that it? Basically, from then on, does it no longer return to its former glories?
4: It, no, it, 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 it is, um, as I say, uh, sort of mugged and and killed on the spot. Really, um, it's it's a very quick, very sudden end to the dynasty. To the Achaemenid clan disappears with the murder of Darius III. Incidentally, of course, he's not killed by Alexander. He's killed by one of his own family, which kind of gives Alexander, therefore, the the opportunity um, to create a piece of propaganda, to say that um, I've come in as a hero to to try to save Persia from uh, from, uh, its own self-destruction or to avenge the death of Darius III. Um, The family dies away. Persia, of course, does not. Um, Persia continues it's the essence of itself under Alexander's rule. Alexander never really brought the centre of Iran completely under his control. Fars province, the homeland of the Persian Empire, was always problematic for him. And I think that's the reason really why he burnt down Persepolis when he did. Um, it was not, as the Greek sources say, in retaliation for the burning of Uh, Athens and Xerxes. No, no, no. It was actually because the Persians around Persepolis simply would not submit to him. So he burns down their chief centre, brings them into line that way. Um, Alexander's successors only have a very tentative hold on central Iran. Um, Susa is still routinely mentioned in the royal texts of the Seleucids. But really, Southwestern Iran is really run by small, kind of local dynasts. Nothing on the scale of the great kings of the of the empire at all. It kind of diminishes and shrinks, but doesn't go away. Um, after the death of Alexander, of course, and then the fall of the uh, of, of the, the Greek successor kingdoms, um, we have the rise of the Parthians, which is a sometimes called the Second Persian Empire, these were very different people to the Achaemenids. They came from northeastern Iran, another kind of tribal people as well, but with a very different kind of take on the world, a very eastern um, vision of the world, uh, as opposed to the Achaemenids. Uh, and they last, of course, for about 500 years. They're given very short shrift very often in the, the histories of Iran and of the ancient world in general. But then when the Sasanians come along and defeat the last Parthian kings, they, in many respects, reactivate the Achaemenid Empire once again. The Sasanian sh- shahs um, and Adashir uh, the, the, the first. Uh, and then his successors, Shapur, and so forth, they come from the same ancestral heartland as the Achaemenids. And they were acutely aware of their Achaemenid heritage to such an extent, of course, that they um, carve images of themselves beneath the tombs of the Achaemenid kings at Naxi Rustam near Persepolis. They used Persepolis as a royal centre, and they activate constantly um, a memory of the Achaemenid, Achaemenid past. In his letters to to the Caesars, Shapur II, for instance, says, um, I know that my ancestors held an empire which outdid yours uh, in strength and uh, in uh, distance, uh, and I claim that empire back. So they were aware of the legacy of the Achaemenids. In the long term, what happens to to the Achaemenids in Persian memory is quite interesting. Um, by the time we get to the, the, the Middle Ages and the, the early Middle Ages, the, the conquest of Iran by the, the Arabs, the Arab Muslims, the Achaemenids have all but disappeared from popular thought and popular memory. Around about 1000 CE, uh, a remarkable poet called uh, Qasim Fadowsi wrote wrote this epic called Shahnameh, uh, the Epic of Kings. It's about the size of the Iliad and the Odyssey put together. And in that, he tries to write a kind of national history of the Iranians. Um, And there's a lot of legend and mythology in the first part of it. The first sort of half of it, really, is given over that way. And then as we get closer to Ferdowsi's old time, 1000 CE, history kind of gets thicker. So the presence of the, the Sasanian kings in this wonderful narrative is there. We can see the Adashias and the Shapurs and the others. We can see that. But there is no real trace of the Achaemenids. Only in one section, which sits right at the, the middle of Shahnameh, do we get a sense of that. And that's in the story of the ruler whom Fadausi calls Iskander Alexander, of course. Now, according to Ferdowsi, Iskander was actually a son of uh, a Persian king called Dara, Darius, of course. So Fidossi's version of the fall of the Achaemenid Empire doesn't chime with reality at all. For Ferdowsi, Alexander of Macedon was simply another Persian shah. Why does he do that? Well, that's because Ferdowsi needs to write out the conquest, the fall of the Achaemenids by Alexander, because for Fadausi, there can only be one great conquest. There can only be one moment where Persian-ness, Persian identity is tested, and that of course is the Arab invasion and the coming of Islam. So the history of the Achaemenids has been remodeled um, in popular narrative. Really, the the kind of activation of of Persian history doesn't come into into Iranians' national conscious again until um, the beginning of the 20th century. Um, Under the last Shah, Mohammad Reza Shah, um, who, of course, went into exile in 1979, um, there was a huge push um, to... Uh, reactivate Achaemenid history. Again, it was being taught in the schools, and the Shah himself saw himself absolutely in utterly as the heir of Cyrus the Great in 1971. He held this huge spectacle at Persepolis and at Pasagad, um, celebrating 2,500 years of unbroken Persian rule, starting from Cyrus and, and finishing with him. But, of course, when the revolution occurred in 79 and into 80, a key history suddenly stopped being taught. And because, of course, as it is now, pre-Islamic history is political dynamite in the Islamic Republic. And I don't think the Islamic Republic of Iran has ever really settled its mind on how to play, how to project or how to deal with its pagan past. Um, it's it's still very much up in the air. so the 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 history of of the Achaemenids in the post-achaemenid world um is is complex and and interactive and and, and plays with all, all sorts of of issues of identity, monarchy uh, and religion.
3: And um finally, we've had quite a lot of questions about the legacy of the persian empire. and um i thought one perhaps a good one to sum those up was Charlotte Sikorsky on instagram who said, can we still see the influence of the Persian Empire today?
4: I think we can. Uh, it's in ways that perhaps um, you wouldn't think about. Um, for instance, without the Persians, the, the Achaemenid Persians, there wouldn't have been uh, an, a Sasanian court culture. Okay, So the, the way in which the, the, the Achaemenids conducted their, their sense of being, ceremonial, um, that kind of thing the Sasanians inherited. And when the Sasanians started indulging in that, so the Byzantines did. And so did the early uh, Islamic caliphate, as well as um, the Indian moguls, the Ottomans. So very much the the kind of idea of monarchy and the idea of sovereignty and ceremonial is very much part of, of a world that was created uh, under the Achaemenids, so you really see a kind of longevity uh, in in that, in ideas of communication and multilingualism. I think that's also inherited from um, the Persians as well. And why why I think the Persians are important to to bring to the historical foreground is the possibilities that they give us for thinking about different approaches to empire. As I've emphasized here, um, a more holistic approach where people are valued and equaled um, if and and should empire um, uh, exist at all. There was a different way of doing empire uh, and it proved to be worthwhile and it proved to be effective. but, of course, it was kind of written out of history because of the, the Greek and, and, and later Latin uh, authors who, who, who dominated the discourse. Um, and therefore, the, the way of, of, of dealing with subject peoples was really modelled on, on the Roman Empire, which, let's face it, was pretty brutal and, and very one-sided as I say, I'll re emphasize again, I, I don't like the idea of empire, but I think if you have to live under an empire, if it is imposed upon you, I think there are better models to take than the Romans. And I think that's why it is important to look at the Persians and think, okay, there could have been a very different world created um, after, it's, after the fall of the Achaemenids.
0: That was Lloyd Llewellyn-Jones. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for a conversation about the excavations at Sutton Hoo.